Audio 27. Restoring America, Part 5. O Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk 3.2. Is God dead in America? Frederick Nietzsche, an atheist philosopher with a Christian background, gained traction in Germany in the late 1800s. And just 50 years before Hitler's rise to power in 1882, Nietzsche wrote a parable entitled The Madman, in which he proclaimed that God is dead. Here is an excerpt from that parable. Where has God gone? He cried. I shall tell you. We have killed him, you and I, the unbelievers. We are his murderers. Before we listen to a good portion of Nietzsche's parable, The Madman, let us be thinking to ourselves how in the world Nietzsche's words could have gained traction amongst the elite of Germany and also the German people. When just 365 years before that in Germany, Martin Luther put upon the Wittenberg door his 95 thesis on October 31st, 1517, which became the genesis of the bondage of the will doctrine movement known as the Protestant Reformation, which swept through Europe, culminating in the pilgrims coming to America in 1620. As we listen to these words of Nietzsche, let us reflect upon how in the world is it possible that critical race theory and the pornographical sex ed program and the dumbing down of our public schools could possibly be gaining traction in America. Fortunately, in Washington State, 55,000 parents at this time have pulled their children out of the public schools. In America, we again need to remember that as free Americans, it is not the responsibility of the government, nor ever has been, but the responsibility to educate our children rests upon we the parents. Also, how is it possible that the transgender and homosexual movement has gained traction in our schools and society? These are good questions, are they not? Who would we say would oppose these movements? Would our founding fathers oppose these movements? Let's find out. First quote by John Adams, our second president. Quote, this constitution is written for a religious and moral people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any others. John Adams. Our second quote by George Washington. Religion and morality are the indispensable supports to good government. Our third quote by James Madison. Our fourth president and father of our constitution. We have staked the future of our civilization and all our political institutions upon the capacity of mankind for self-government, upon the capacity of each and every one of us Americans to govern ourselves, to control ourselves, to sustain ourselves according to what? Yes, James Madison says, according to the Ten Commandments of God. Our fourth quote by Jedediah Morse, father of American geography. Quote, to the kindly influence we owe that degree of civil freedom and political and social happiness which mankind now enjoys in proportion as the genuine effects of Christianity are diminished in a nation in the same proportion will the people of that nation recede from the blessings of general freedom. I hold this to be 
truth confirmed by experience. And it follows that all efforts made to destroy the foundation of our holy religion ultimately tend to the subversion also of our political freedom and happiness. Whenever the pillars of Christianity shall be overthrown, our present Republican forms of government and the blessings which flow, flow from them must fall with them. Our fifth quote, also by Jedediah Morris, let ministers and philosophers, statesmen, patriots, unite their endeavors to renovate the age by impressing the minds of men with the importance of educating their little boys and girls, inculcating in the minds of the youth the love of their country, of instructing them in the art of self-government, and in short, leading them in the study and practice of the exalted virtues of the Christian system. The last quote by Benjamin Rush. If we were to remove the Bible from the public schools, we would be wasting so much time punishing crimes and taking so little pains to prevent them. Now, keeping in mind what is being taught our children and the cultural rot we as Americans are being asked to accept as the new normal, along with what the German people were hearing from philosophers like Nietzsche and Hegel, let us compare that to the thoughts of the Founding Fathers. Quite a difference, is it not? Our Founding Fathers' thoughts led to one of the greatest, if not the greatest, constitution known to mankind. And most of us know that the thoughts of the German leaders in the late 1800s and early 1900s contributed, contributed to the sparking into reality of World War I and World War II and the Holocaust of six million Jews. Let us again read the excerpt from Nietzsche's Mad Men, written just 50 years before Hitler's rise to power. Where has God gone? He cried. I shall tell you. We have killed him, you and I. We are his murderers, but how have we done this? Think about this. If we as Americans murdered God, would we no longer be a guilt-ridden people? No God to worry about judging us. No longer necessary to repent over our sins. Totally free to deny the self-evident truth that we are liars by nature and that we lie to ourselves the most and our sin nature is at enmity with God. Hostile to God. Free to deny that the evil proclivities of our heart is the fountain from which all evil flows with even a hatred toward the true God. Free to become victims and blame everyone else for any burden we might endure. Free to make our goal in life that the ends justify the means in creating our utopia, even if it means exterminating an entire race of people as happened in the Holocaust. Is this the kind of freedom we want, or is the absolute truth that will set us free? And who might the embodiment of that absolute truth be? What if we as Americans are a doubting Thomas and need proof that Jesus is the absolute truth? Let us listen to Jesus in John 14, verse 5. Thomas said unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Verse 6. Jesus saith unto Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth. That is the embodiment of the absolute truth. And 
I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Verse 7. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. John 20, verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. That is, Jesus came to his disciples after he rose from the dead. Maybe we as Americans are like Thomas. Thomas was still doubting even after Jesus rose from the dead. John 20, verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. That is, Jesus came in his new spiritual body. Verse 25. The other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I, Thomas, shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I, Thomas, will not believe. Verse 26, And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus again in his new spiritual body, that could pass through shut doors. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Verse 27, Then saith he to Thomas, that is, Jesus said to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, Thomas, and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand, Thomas, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, Thomas, but be believing. Verse 28, And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Did Jesus actually have a touchable spiritual body, or was he like a ghost? Dr. Luke chapter 24, verse 37, But they, the disciples, were terrified and affrighted, and supposed that they had seen a ghost. Verse 38, And Jesus said unto them, Why are ye troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Verse 39. Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit or a ghost hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. Verse 40. And when Jesus had thus spoken, Jesus showed them his hands and his feet. Verse 41. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, Jesus said unto his disciples, Have ye here any meat? Verse 42. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of honeycomb. Verse 43. And Jesus took the fish and did eat before them. When Jesus comes back the second time, will we as believers receive a spiritual body? like Christ's spiritual body described above. Former Mr. Morality instructs us as follows. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. That is, our natural body is sown in corruption. Our natural body is raised, though, in incorruption. That is, it is raised from the grave in incorruption. Verse 43. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Verse 44. It is sown a natural body. 
it has raised a spiritual body that could be touched just like Jesus' spiritual body was touched. And we could eat broiled fish just like Jesus ate broiled fish. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Verse 45, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. That is, he quickens us. We have a spiritual death in which we are raised as a new creation. And then we have a second resurrection in which we are united with our spiritual body, which will be similar to what Christ's spiritual body was like. Verse 46, Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. John 5, verse 28, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, verse 29, and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of eternal life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of eternal damnation. Now, as Americans, we might be saying to ourselves, that is fine and dandy, but we are still doubting Thomas's. How can I be sure that the absolute truth exists? We need personalized proof. It is good for us Americans to want proof. For Christ himself is into personalized proof. That is, Jesus is not into the remodeling business, but only new construction business. And when he finds us, we can neither accept nor reject him, similar to our natural birth. He makes us a new creation and then invades our life by his spirit coming to live in us. That is, the new creation's life is invaded with the absolute truth. And let us let one of the leading haters of Jesus give his own testimony of how Jesus invaded his life and Christ's spirit came to literally live in him. That would be the Apostle Paul who wrote almost half of the New Testament. He wrote 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Now listen very carefully to this verse. I, the Apostle Paul, am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but it is Christ that keeps on living in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I do not live by my own faith, but I live by the faith of the Son of God. It is Christ's faith that comes along with the package of the new creation. Who loved me, Christ loved me, and gave himself for me. The Apostle Paul, one of the worst persecutors of the church. Verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law or morality, 
then Christ is dead in vain. Fisherman John confirms former Mr. Morality's words. First John chapter 4, verse 13. Hereby know we that we dwell in Jesus and Jesus dwells in us because Jesus hath given us of his spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 8. We're back to the Apostle Paul again. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9. But ye are not in the flesh. That is, you're not natural men any longer. But are in the spirit, because you are a, a new creation. If so, that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So we cannot call ourselves a Christian unless we're 100% sure that Christ's spirit literally dwells in us. So how much more personal can Jesus become than for his spirit to actually live in us? That is pretty personal, is it not? And after we die physically and Jesus comes back the second time for the great white throne judgment, we will receive our new spiritual body that will be like in appearance to what we have now, but it will also be able to go through shut doors, eat fish, etc. Now that is hope, is it not? Let us compare all what we have learned to Nietzsche's philosophy, how he viewed life. By the way, it is said that Hitler gave the works of Nietzsche to Mussolini for a birthday present. Again, let us keep in mind the difference between the words of Jesus, the words of our founding fathers of America, as we listen carefully to Nietzsche's parable entitled The Madman. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I am looking for God. I am looking for God. As many of those who did not believe in God standing together there. Let us keep in mind, it was those that did not believe in God that were standing together. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing together there. The madman excited considerable laughter. Have you lost him then, said one? Did he lose his way like a child, said another of the unbelievers? Or is God hiding? Is God afraid of us? Has God gone on a voyage? Or has God immigrated? Thus they shouted and laughed. The madman sprang into their midst and pierced them with his glances. Where has God gone? He cried. I shall tell you where God has gone. We 
have killed him. You and I, the unbelievers, we are his murderers. But how have we, the unbelievers, done this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained the earth from its sun? Whither is the sun moving now? Must not the lanterns be lit in the morning because the sun is gone? Do we not hear anything yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we not smell anything yet of God's decomposition? God's also decompose, you know. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we, murderers of all murderers, console ourselves? That which was of the holiest and mightiest of all, that the world has yet possessed, has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off of us? With what water could we purify ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred game shall we need to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we not ourselves become gods simply to be worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed and whosoever shall be born after us, for the sake of this deed, he shall be part of a higher history than all history hitherto. It has been further related that on the same day, the madman entered divers churches, and there sang a requiem, let out and quieted. He said to have retorted each time, what are these churches now if they are not the tombs and sepulchers of God? Now, there are many statements we could comment on in this parable, but let us just comment on a couple. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing together there, he, the man-man, excited considerable laughter. Have you lost them, said one. Did he lose his way like a child? said another, or is God hiding? Is God afraid of us? Has God gone on a voyage? Has God immigrated? Thus they shouted and laughed. The madman sprang into their midst and pierced them with his glances. Where has God gone? He cried. I shall tell you, we have killed him. You and I, the unbelievers, we are his murderers. But how have we, the unbelievers, done this? Now, how we see ourselves before God as Americans or Germans will determine our reaction to this parable. If by self-evident truths, we know that all evil in this world flows right out of our own heart and is at enmity with God, is hostile towards God and an arch enemy of God, then it is no surprise to us that we would either want to pull the true Jesus from his throne and murder him. In fact, to any of us who recognize the evil proclivities of our, our heart, Nietzsche is nothing more than a Johnny-come-lately. For the Bible teachers, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, 
out of envy, handed Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified or murdered. Matthew 27, verse 17. Therefore, when they, the Pharisees, were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? Verse 18. For Pilate knew that for envy the Pharisees had delivered him. Verse 22. Pilate saith unto the Pharisees, What shall I do with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. So if Jesus' own nation and own people of unbelievers would murder God, Nietzsche's madman parable becomes yesterday's news, a non-issue, a nothing burger, no news, matter of no concern, no big deal. But what if we as Americans or Germans are ignorant that the fountain of all evil in this world flows from our own heart and that Jesus, who knew no sin, was made sin and took on hell for us and also fulfilled the moral law for us as our ticket into heaven as we know and accept we should be condemned to hell because of that fountain of evil that exists in our heart, leaving us in a state of repentance rather than desiring to murder God. Then what? Then as unbelievers, we have only two other choices. We can see ourselves as sweet and wonderful before God, or we can see ourselves as sweet and sour. Most likely, Nietzsche's unbelievers saw themselves as sweet and wonderful. Those of us who see ourselves as sweet and wonderful are wrecking balls no matter where we go, especially when given positions of power, for we have no sin nature to govern, and therefore common sense tells us, as well as scripture, that our conscience can only be cleared by resorting to the blame game because we have been delivered from our protector called conscience. But Hitler did not call our conscience our protector. But Hitler said the following, I am liberating man from the degrading chimera known as conscience. Adolf Hitler. Last quote. It is necessary that I should die for my people, but my spirit will rise from the grave and the whole world will know that I, Hitler, was right. Was Hitler right? Then why did he commit suicide? Answer. He lied to himself in a big way. Was Nietzsche right? Then why in 1889, at the age of 45, did he suffer a collapse and afterward a complete loss of his mental faculties and spent the rest of his life in the care of first his mother and then his sister until his death in 1900? Herod Agrippa II is eaten by worms. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Now, about that time, Herod Agrippa II, the king, stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he sought please the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God, and not of man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten of worms, and he gave up the ghost. 
So what are we to learn from this? How about Galatians 6, verse 7? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Therefore, if there's nothing new under the sun, why should we continue to go down streets which are well known to be a dead end? rather than to take heed of King Solomon's conclusion of the whole matter. Ecclesiastes 12:13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. It is very simple. Fear God and keep his commandments. Why? For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. To be continued, may the Lord bless thee and keep thee in the name of Jesus. Amen.